You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Between June 25th of 2007 and August of 2014, many people would have their lives changed or ended at the hands of someone who was entrusted with improving their quality of life as they got older. Elizabeth Wetlaufer would eventually be charged and convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder, four counts of attempted murder, and two counts of aggravated assault. All of these crimes were committed against people who had been placed in her care as a nurse. How and why did she commit the crimes that she committed, and what can we learn from this case? Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Crimes and Conviction of Elizabeth Wetlaufer. And welcome back to GBNF. As you know, if you've been following along, this week we are finishing our series on one of Canada's worst serial killers, Elizabeth Wetlaufer. If you are picking this episode to listen to us for the first time, you may want to go back and listen to episodes 1, 2, and 3 in this series so that you can follow along and pick up some of the context. This week, we will cover charges 8 to 14 chronologically along Elizabeth's path of destruction and death. Are you ready to see the end of this series? I am. Don't get me wrong. I knew a lot about this case before I started to research it, but there has been a lot of new things that I've learned along the way. You have to get yourself into a mindset with cases like this one because you can feel a whole bunch of things. I've already shared that I feel like Elizabeth was let down by people she knew and by people that she didn't. I also obviously can't comprehend the massive loss of life that she left in her wake. So many lives were stolen away because this woman thought that she was doing the work of God. It has taken its toll on me mentally, that's for sure. Imagine being a family member. Yeah, we've talked about that so much. Her victims' families literally thanked her in obituaries and in person for looking after their loved ones long before they found out that she actually did quite the opposite. Such a roller coaster of emotions and resurfaced emotions so long after you dealt with them the first time. Grief is hard enough, let alone something like this. So suffice to say, yes, I am looking forward to giving my time, effort, and thought to something different next week. But before we get there, we have to get through this one. 
Let's talk about Elizabeth Wetlaufer one more time and give a little bit more time to the people whose lives that she deemed were over. Last week, we talked about the first seven charges in chronological order that were a part of Elizabeth Wetlaufer's murderous spree. This week, we will talk about the final five murder charges and the final two attempted murder charges that she faced. Last week's victims covered from 2007 to October 14th of 2011. This week, we will cover the rest of the victims and the timeline from October 25th, 2011 until 2016. Last week, we finished with the story of Gladys Millard, and we even mentioned that Elizabeth was afraid after that overdose that the staff at Crescent Care would catch on to the fact that she had caused Gladys' death. However, that did not happen. Well, she certainly wasn't all that afraid, though, as that would be the first murder in a spree of three in very quick succession. Three murders within less than a month, to be exact. The second person in that run of three murders was Helen Matheson. Helen was not diabetic and she had no need for synthetic insulin. On October 25, 2011, Elizabeth was working the afternoon shift from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Crescent Care, the long-term care home that Helen lived within and Elizabeth was full-time staff at. Helen lived near Elizabeth's nursing station within the home. What is interesting to note here is that Elizabeth seemed to have a connection with Helen. Harkening back to the Angel of Mercy that we mentioned in part three of this series, she even said that Helen enjoyed ice cream with blueberry pie, her favorite, earlier in the day. Elizabeth said that she felt the urge rise up in her again, and she decided that it was time for Helen to die. She said that Helen was a very quiet and determined woman, who seemed to just be waiting to die. So Elizabeth did what she did in every case before this one. She went into the medical supply room and gathered insulin and an insulin needle and then returned to Helen's room and injected her. Elizabeth said that Helen did not fight or resist the injection. Elizabeth would go on to say that she got a feeling of relief in her chest and she heard laughter in her head after she injected Helen. The following day, Elizabeth was back on shift and part of her job for the day was to oversee Helen's deteriorating condition. Elizabeth remembers that Helen did not eat or drink at all after she was injected with the insulin. At 8.15pm on October 26, Elizabeth recorded the following in Helen's notes. Helen appears very pale and listless. She responds to voice occasionally. The inside of her mouth appears dry and sticky, and her skin is displaying tenting. At 8 p.m., she appeared to be in pain and was given 10 milligrams of morphine. She has been moved, and her son has been called. On October 27th of 2011, at 1 a.m., Helen's son John notified staff that his mother had stopped breathing and that she had passed away. Another murder from Elizabeth. As much as these are all the same in so many ways, they certainly are different as well. Obviously, different people react differently to insulin, resulting in faster and shorter times before death. But also, Elizabeth seemed to act differently with people based upon her own relationship with them. 
In some cases, she let them die, and in other cases, you see her giving morphine to help with the pain. It's very strange and interesting to me. Well, if we operate under the assumption that everything that Elizabeth has said was true, that could be because she didn't believe that she decided who was going to die. So, seemingly, if it was a patient of hers that she had a problem with, she didn't intend to help them after the injection. If it was a patient that she cared for, like Helen here, she seemed to have felt some guilt or some care still for the patient, even though she had seemingly already settled on their death. But you are right, though. It is certainly strange to read through each case like this. The fifth murder charge would pertain to the death of Mary Zerwinski. As mentioned, this case also came quickly on the heels of Helen and Gladys. Mary was a patient who suffered from dementia, but again, not diabetes. On November 6, 2011, Elizabeth was scheduled to work that same afternoon shift. It was her last shift before she was to go on vacation. Elizabeth says that while she was caring for Mary, Mary asked Elizabeth to move her to a deathbed. Mary had been in declining health for some time, and she told Elizabeth that she believed she was going to die. With the help of another staff member, Elizabeth moved Mary into palliative care room, even though she believed that there was no signs that Mary was going to die. Elizabeth, however, had already made her own decision. She had decided that Mary was indeed going to be the next patient of hers to die. Around 4.30 p.m., Elizabeth would grab insulin and a needle from the medication room and return to Mary's room. Elizabeth would tell Mary that the needles were for pain as she injected Mary with 50 units of fast-acting insulin and 30 units of long-acting insulin. Immediately, Elizabeth remembers hearing and feeling that laughter after she injected Mary. At 5.23 p.m., Elizabeth would enter an end-of-life care note in Mary's medical chart. It read, quote, Mary was sitting at the dining room table at 1655 and was very pale. She started breathing in soft gasps 30 per minute. She asked staff to put her to bed so I can die there. She was taken to the palliative room and put to bed. She then asked for someone to pray with her. P-S-W-O-R said Hail Mary with her, and Mary visibly relaxed. Son has been called, unquote. On November 7, 2011, at 2.15 a.m., Mary Zerwinski was found without vital signs, and family was notified of her death. This one hits me hard, and I think that you know why. The whole dying alone thing? Yeah. Anyone that knows me knows that, sadly, I've had to deal with a lot of family death at a relatively young age. I was alone in the room with my mother and my grandfather when they took their last breaths in hospital. I have this inherent belief that nobody or nothing, even like a pet, should die alone if at all possible. So this makes me angry on an entirely new level. This woman knew that Mary was going to die, or at least was pretty damn sure of it. She had injected her with more than enough insulin to kill her. Yet. She either waits too long to call the family or doesn't do so with any urgency, perhaps, and Mary dies alone. First, Elizabeth decides, or had decided for her, whatever you want to say, that Mary is going to die now. 
Then she doesn't even give her the dignity of perhaps having the chance to not die alone. I agree. You're right. It is awful, especially given that she knew what was going on. I understand that I feel more strongly about this because of personal experiences, but man, this one and that fact hit me on a whole new level. I suppose it's foolish of me to think that a serial killer would have regard for anyone in that way, especially since showing that she was sure that Mary was going to die would have likely looked suspicious. And Elizabeth wasn't done yet. She wasn't ready to be discovered. There is still more to come. Her next victim was Helen Young. Helen was another World War II veteran, which we mentioned in one of the past episodes. Helen had been living at Crescent Care for almost four years after being admitted with dementia, but not diabetes. Helen's file stated that she was initially not happy at Crescent Care, but that over time she had managed to settle in. Elizabeth would describe Helen as feisty, outspoken, miserable, and unhappy with her life. Elizabeth found Helen to be annoying because she would always call out, Help me, nurse, and Elizabeth found Helen to be difficult to deal with. Elizabeth also said that Helen would often cry out that she wanted to die. On July 13, 2013, Elizabeth was working the afternoon shift. She said that Helen was again crying out that she wanted to die, and Elizabeth said she felt that red surge again rise up within her, and she decided that she would give Helen what she wanted. Just before dinner, Elizabeth would inject Helen with 60 units of fast-acting insulin, and after dinner, she injected her again, this time with 60 units of slow-acting insulin. She told Helen that the injections were to help with the pain. At 7.27, Elizabeth would record, Helen was sweaty after supper and was slurring her words. At around 9 p.m., Elizabeth was summoned to Helen Young's room by a PSW because Helen's face was red, her arms and legs were bent inward, her eyes were bulging, and she was moaning very loudly. It was believed that Helen was having a seizure as a response to the insulin. At 8.40 a.m. the following morning, Helen Young passed away and her family was notified. Elizabeth would be working again later when the family arrived, and she would even hug Helen's niece as the niece cried on her shoulder. Elizabeth told the niece that she was very sorry for her loss. And here we go. I don't know if this was the first time that this happened, but this is the first time that it was in the statement of facts for this case. Here, we have Elizabeth showing that she clearly has no moral compass. Much like most criminals, she returns to the scene of the crime here, and she literally is able to pretend that she is sorry for a life that she took being lost. Wow. Like, I don't even know what to say here other than just wow. I don't know how it's even possible for someone to compartmentalize their lives to this level. Unfortunately, Elizabeth was still not done. The second-to-last murder that Elizabeth was charged with was in the death of Maureen Pickering. Maureen had moved to Crescent Care in September of 2013. Her diagnoses included dementia and Alzheimer's, but not diabetes. Over time, medical records show that Maureen's mental health deteriorated over time and Elizabeth would say that she was a handful. On March 22, 2014, Elizabeth was on the afternoon shift and Maureen had a rough day. 
She was yelling at staff and other residents, and she was pacing around saying that she was nervous and scared. Elizabeth said that she was getting angry about spending so much time with Maureen when she had 32 other patients that she was also looking after. She felt the urge rise up in her again, but she thought to herself that she didn't want Maureen to die. But maybe she could dose her enough to put her into a coma so that she was easier to deal with. My god, that is blunt. No kidding. And a change kind of here again. This time it's as though she has decided that insulin is working the way that she wants it to when she decides to kill people. Maybe it can work in other ways too. Just a disgusting thought process. The worst part though is that obviously Elizabeth follows through on that line of thinking. Around 8pm she would gather fast and slow acting insulin. She would give Maureen two insulin injections about two and a half hours apart. First. 80 units of long-acting insulin, and then 60 units of fast-acting insulin. Elizabeth said that she administered so much because she hoped that the insulin and coma would change Maureen's mind makeup and make her easier to deal with. The following morning, a nurse realized that Maureen did not come down for breakfast at 8 a.m., and then that nurse continued to check on Maureen every half hour. At 10.50 a.m., Maureen was found to be sweaty, unresponsive, cold, and clammy, with deep snoring sounds being made as she breathed. The next day, with Elizabeth back on shift, she would receive a call at 5 p.m. that Maureen had suffered a stroke and was unresponsive. She was going to be returned to caressant care in a palliative state. Four days later, Maureen would pass away. Of note... When Maureen passed away, Elizabeth was already no longer employed at Caressant Care. You would like to think that they were finally on to her, but I mean, I guess we already know the answer to that question. She had been fired actually as a result of non-criminal medicine administration error. So strangely, no. Even though there seems to have been a lot of insulin unspoken for. With caressant care in her rearview mirror, one would think and hope that perhaps her murderous spree would come to an end. But, sadly, there would be one more victim. Elizabeth would be hired as an RN at the Meadow Park Nursing Home in London, Ontario. That is where she would meet her final murder victim, Arpad Horvath. Arpad had been admitted to Meadow Park in August of 2013 and would live there for one year before Elizabeth would take his life. Arpad suffered from dementia and diabetes, among other things. It was noted by Elizabeth and others that at times Arpad would be inappropriate and explicit with the staff. On August 21st of 2014, Elizabeth noted that Arpad had been kicking at staff members. On August 23rd of 2014, Arpad would be one of the patients under Elizabeth's care. She made two notes on that day about Arpad, spitting and swinging his fists at her when she approached him to help. Elizabeth decided that enough was enough, and she said that she felt angry, frustrated, and vindictive in regards to Arpad. She went to the medical storage and attained two insulin pens to inject Arpad with. Elizabeth would attend Arpad around 8 p.m. and inject him with 80 units of fast-acting insulin, and 60 units of long-acting insulin. She said that he tried to fight her off, but was unable to. 
She said that there was no change in Arpad by the end of her shift, but that his condition would change later. Just over eight hours later, a PSW would find Arpad unresponsive, sweaty, cold and clammy, and unconscious. An ambulance would be called for Arpad, and he would be transported to London Health Science Center. It was determined that he was indeed hypoglycemic, but testing was not done to check his insulin levels. He was treated and remained in hospital because he was in a coma and having seizures. Seven days later, after Elizabeth had called the hospital numerous times to check on Arpad, he passed away in hospital. He passed away on August 31st of 2014. Arpad Horvath would be the final life that was taken by Elizabeth Wetlofer. However, she was not finished trying to end lives. On October 1st, 2014, a month later, Elizabeth would resign from Meadow Park to get help with drug and alcohol issues that she was struggling with. She admitted to police that she had been stealing and taking medication. Perhaps this is a bit of an answer to what happened at Caressant Care also. That very well could be. She would then take a job in January of 2015 with Lifeguard Home Care, based out of Brantford, Ontario. There, she would work within homes of clients and also within other long-term care homes. One of the homes was Telfer Place in Paris, Ontario. That is where Elizabeth would meet her next victim, the victim of the third attempted murder charge. Sandra Towler had been admitted to Telfer Place in February of 2014 and diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's disease and diabetes that was controlled by oral medication, not by insulin. On September 6th of 2015, Elizabeth was working with Sandra Towler. Elizabeth said that she attended Sandra's room, which was shared with three roommates, and she was feeling again frustrated by her job and she sensed that Sandra did not want to be alive anymore. She would inject Sandra with 80 units of long-acting insulin and 60 units of fast-acting insulin. Sandra had never had a hypoglycemic event previous to this, and medical records would show that Sandra became hypoglycemic not long after Elizabeth's shift ended for the day. Sandra would be hospitalized, but taken care of, and she would survive. Elizabeth said that she was never even questioned about her time caring for Sandra. Not even questioned. That can't even be correct. I mean, she was the nurse taking care of Sandra right before she had her ev first ever hypoglycemic event, and you mean to tell me that she didn't even get questioned about how the day went? That seems a little bit out there. I agree, but it's not entirely impossible either, unfortunately. Finally, we reach the end of what is like a sick and twisted roll call. Beverly Bertram was the final known victim of Elizabeth Wetlofer. Starting in July of 2016, Elizabeth would start work with St. Elizabeth Healthcare, and through there, she wound up working with Beverly in her home. I almost have to think that this is more than a sick coincidence. Elizabeth, this serial killer here, believes that she's hearing from God and that he is guiding her to kill people. And she winds up working at a place called St. Elizabeth. This almost has to be some kind of narcissistic move, wouldn't you think? That may be a leap, but, I mean, you might also not be wrong. In the summer of 2016, Beverly had surgery on her left leg, 
and she would return home on August 19th, and she would have nurses attend from time to time to assist with an infection and to administer intravenous antibiotics through a PICC line. On August 20th, Elizabeth would attend the home of Beverly and administer the antibiotics through the PICC line. By all accounts, she showed up and did her job correctly, and that's all that she did. However, later on that day, unannounced, Elizabeth would attend the home of another St. Elizabeth home patient, and she would enter the house while the patient was showering. When the client got out of the shower, she found Elizabeth going through her medications. Elizabeth would tell the client that she was looking for an oxygen meter that she had left there previously. Elizabeth admitted to police as part of her confession that she was there to steal insulin from the client so that she could kill Beverly the next day. The reason that she did this was because even though Beverly was diabetic, she knew that if she died, investigators would look at her own insulin supply. By stealing insulin from another patient, Elizabeth believed that she would not be discovered. The next day, indeed, that is what Elizabeth tried to do. Elizabeth would attend Beverly's home, and Beverly even remembers Elizabeth taking a long time to obtain the antibiotics from the fridge. After receiving what she believed was just her antibiotics, Beverly started to feel nauseous and dizzy. Beverly decided not to take her own insulin that day and managed to recover from the hypoglycemic event on her own. Elizabeth would tell police that she was angry and frustrated again and overworked. She said that the insulin was indeed pre-planned and that she actually gave Beverly 180 units of insulin via the pick line. <sighs> That's insane. Like, Beverly is incredibly lucky to be alive. I'm not sure how she survived that. That's an ungodly amount of insulin to give to someone. And thankfully and mercifully, this was the last known attempt made by Elizabeth to end someone's life. Just over a week later, she would resign from St. Elizabeth after she was assigned to work with diabetic children at a school. Thankfully, this woman had some kind of scruples, according to her. She quit the job because she didn't trust herself not to harm the children. So she ha would never hurt children, but who cares about seniors? Do I have that right? Unfortunately, yeah, it seems that's correct. Finally, on September 16th, 2016, Elizabeth would check herself into CAMH, as we mentioned, and she would make her confessions. At the time of her voluntary admission to CAMH, there were no ongoing criminal investigations relating to anyone related to Elizabeth Wetlaufer. After her confessions to the staff at CAMH, investigations would begin in earnest into the validity of all the cases and victims that Elizabeth had mentioned. Of course, in a situation like this, police need to be sure that what is being confessed to is in fact valid and not simply the words of someone who is incredibly mentally ill. Elizabeth was sadly both, telling the truth and incredibly mentally unwell. As mentioned, on October 25th of 2016, Elizabeth Wetlaufer would be charged initially with eight counts of first-degree murder. Then, on January 13th of 2017, she would be charged with four counts of attempted murder and two counts of aggravated assault. On June 1st, 2017, Elizabeth would plead guilty to all charges, 
and a year later, on June 5th, 2018, a public inquiry was started into the circumstances that allowed for Elizabeth to kill all of these patients within her care without being suspected. The inquiry would eventually decide that systematic failures in the long-term care system in Canada had allowed Elizabeth to carry out her crimes without raising any suspicion. Calls would be made, starting before the end of this inquiry, to make changes to prevent this from happening ever again. So, what we have here is obviously an incredible loss of life, and a woman who took advantage of loopholes and issues within the system to, quote, ease the pressure, unquote, of her own life. She was a person who was educated, trained, and sent to take care of people who were unable to do so for themselves any longer, and she took it upon herself to take the lives of husbands, wives, children, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, World War II veterans, and just incredible human beings. Elizabeth Wettlaufer was a monster, and she lived above the law for a long time and changed the lives of so many people forever. At the same time, Elizabeth Wettlaufer was a woman who was dealt a difficult hand in life, at home, in her social life, in her life, and in her work life. She's someone who clearly did try to get help at times, but could not get the help that she needed. This story, to me, is sad all around. There is a lot that can be learned here within long-term care and as pertains to mental health. It seems to me that here in Canada we have a system that really doesn't take care of any of the problems on the fringe of society, and we're seeing a lot of those problems get worse and get amplified as we progress through the years. There are a lot of things here that went wrong to cause all of it. Absolutely. At the same time, I don't think we can allow for excuses to be made for actions that Elizabeth took here, and obviously excuses have not been accepted. She will likely not see freedom in any real sense again in her lifetime, and that is how things should be. Certainly. There is one last thing that I do want to mention here, and that is interviews and discussions that have happened with Elizabeth over the years. As much as it sucks to say, Elizabeth could be a vulnerable resource in ensuring that this doesn't happen again in the future. Part of the long-term care home's public inquiry was Elizabeth sitting down with three lawyers to discuss what she did and things that she thinks could change to prevent it from happening again. Elizabeth met with those lawyers on February 14th of 2018 and decided not to have a lawyer present. One of the things that she was asked in that two-hour interview was what she thought could have been done or changed to stop her killing spree. Here are the five most pertinent and telling answers that she gave. First, she said that there needs to be better control placed on insulin. She told the lawyers that insulin was the drug of choice because it wasn't tracked in the same ways that other narcotics were tracked. It wasn't counted or tracked and she knew it could kill people. She said that there was often insulin cartridges just left around that could be picked up and used by her at any time without being traceable. The cartridges would not have patient names on them, only the boxes they came in. The second thing that Elizabeth mentioned was that medication rooms need to be easily seen and accessible to those not inside. 
She said that when she was in a medication room, nobody could see in, and there was no checks and balances as to what she was doing inside of the room. She said that where she had worked, there were not cameras to watch the rooms, not even the door, and people going in and out. The third thing that Elizabeth mentioned, Lance alluded to a lot earlier. Mental health checks are important. Whether that be because of her job or because she was seeing a therapist, she said that people didn't really check in on her and her own mental well-being. She had long been on two drugs, one for obsessive compulsive disorder and the other was an antipsychotic. She said that only when she was taken off of the antipsychotic in prison did she realize the full gravity of what she had done and the lives that she had taken. The fourth thing that Elizabeth mentioned was an advocate for dementia patients. She said that every patient that she picked had some dementia, and that was a part of what became her criteria or modus operandi. She said that that was a major part of not getting caught. Doctors and administer administrators did not seem concerned when sudden or unexpected patient deaths occurred within patients who suffered from dementia. Those deaths were never looked at as unexpected. The final thing that Elizabeth mentioned is something that we have railed on about in these episodes and others. She cannot believe that she had confessed to people that she had killed patients and nobody did a thing. She said that she told a girlfriend in 2007 about the first two victims. That girlfriend told Elizabeth not to do that again because she didn't want to get caught. Elizabeth is unsure if she believed her or not. Elizabeth then confessed again in 2011 to a teenager who was working with her at Crescent Care. Again, nothing was said. Then, in 2014, she told her pastor and his wife, and finally a year later, she told an ex-boyfriend. That ex-boyfriend simply told her that she should change her job so that she didn't have the chance to do what she had done. As we had mentioned before, she also told a lawyer in 2014, and that lawyer kind of just laughed it off. I said it before, and I'll say it again. If you knew that Elizabeth Wetlawfer had tried to kill people, and killed people, and you didn't tell anyone, you're just as guilty as she is. You should be ashamed of yourself, and you should honestly live with the guilt of knowing that you could have saved lives, and you didn't. We need to be better just like we always say here. We need to fix long-term care homes and the lives of our seniors. We need to change the ways that we look after our mentally unwell members of society. It would seem that we need to change a lot of things. But, on a smaller level, one that each and every one of us can change, if someone says that they killed someone, you call the police. Let the police decide if it's true or not but do not keep your mouth shut. Exactly. We all have to work together on this thing called life, and we all have to try and do our part to hashtag be better and be better for everyone around us. We are, after all, whether you like it or not, in this thing together. I think that will put a wrap on Elizabeth Wetlawfer for now. Absolutely. Please, take a moment to let us know what you thought of this series on one of Canada's most notorious serial killers. Let us know how we did. Let us know what we can do differently. Come check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or Patreon, or anywhere else that we can pop up. 
Most of all, come back here next week and check in with us on another case. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Have an awesome week.